Take your Bibles, if you would, this morning and turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 3, a very familiar chapter, I'm certain, to most of you. John, chapter 3. And I want to read for us verses 1 through 10. A familiar story, but one that we're going to look at through a different light, a different lens this morning. John, chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit." Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? Doesn't that strike you when you read those words? Are you the teacher, not a teacher, the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? Let's bow before the Lord in prayer. Father, we ask now, as we turn to your word, that you'll help us to understand it properly. Help us to see the truths here that we need to understand today that we might live for you all the more, be more devoted to you, be more thankful for that which we have in Christ, be more ready to serve you in whatever way we can. And we'll give you the praise in Jesus' precious name. Amen. When we see those words, we have to say, what is Jesus talking about? If Nicodemus is the teacher in Israel, and Jesus is saying, how is it that you don't understand the new birth, where would he learn of the new birth? Well, it has to be in the Old Testament then. And, you know, many turn to Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26, where it talks about God taking a heart of stone out of Israel and putting in its place a heart of flesh, the new creation, the new life in that fashion. But it says nothing about birth. It says nothing about being born, nothing about being born again. But there is a text, if you'll turn with me, to Psalm 87, which does talk about the new birth. And it is far more clear and far more emphatic about it, and is probably that which Jesus is talking about. He's saying to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, in your Hebrew Bible, you have this large book of hymns that was used by the nation of Israel over and over again in worship, especially in the temple. Nicodemus, if you're the teacher of Israel, Why aren't you familiar with what the book of Psalms teaches about the new birth? Psalm 87 begins this way, and we're going to start with the psalm heading. 
because the psalm heading is part of Scripture. How do we know that? Well, if we compare Psalm 18 with 2 Samuel chapter 22, we find that 2 Samuel 22 verse 1 is identical to the psalm heading on Psalm 18. We don't eliminate the reading of 2 Samuel chapter 22 verse 1 from our public reading in the pulpit or from our devotional reading just because it's the heading of the psalm. It's part of Scripture, and we treat it as part of Scripture. It is inspired, it is inerrant, and it is significant for us. All Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for uh, correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be mature, complete, thoroughly equipped unto every good work, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. So we don't want to neglect anything. Even the genealogies are of value according to that text. So we have to look at these things and we have to understand. The same thing goes with the psalm of Hezekiah in Isaiah chapter 37. We don't eliminate the reading of its heading and its subscription. The same with the prayer of Habakkuk in Habakkuk chapter 3 that begins with the prayer of Habakkuk. The same as the prayer of Moses in Psalm 90, the same type of heading. It's the heading of the psalm of Habakkuk. And the last verse, verse 19 of Habakkuk 3, says, To the chief musician upon my stringed instruments, the same phrase we read over and over and over again in the psalms, in the headings. We don't eliminate verse 1 and verse 19 in Habakkuk chapter 3 and not read it, neglect it, cross it out of our Bibles, not include it in our translations just because they are psalm headings, the superheading and the subheading. No, it's part of Scripture. And the same here. These headings are part of Scripture. They need to be read. They need to be looked at. There's something there that we can learn. And it begins, a psalm of the sons of Korah, a song. Now, notice something. When I talked about Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 1 was the literary and historical heading, the prayer of Habakkuk. The end of the psalm, verse 19, was the musical instruction. For the chief musician or the superintendent of music, the choir master, on my stringed instruments. So just like Habakkuk chapter 3, the psalm headings in the psalms, the top heading should be the literary who wrote it, and the historical, if there's any historical event to which it is tied. And then the end of it would be the musical heading. You'll look at our psalm as it's laid out in our English Bibles on Psalm 87, and you'll see that it doesn't put the this musical heading there. It's been mixed up, and it's been put attached to the following psalm. So if we go down there to Psalm 88, we see a song, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Notice that's the reverse order of a psalm, the, a psalm of the sons of Korah, a song, at the beginning of Psalm 87. It's like bracketing it and putting it together. Not only that, we see that Psalm 88 has a second author, if we keep that heading there, because it says it's a masculal of Heman, the Ezraite, and Heman is not a, one of the sons of Korah. He's one of the sons of Asaph. And so as we're looking at this, we, unless we keep the psalm heading as it is, if we keep the psalm heading as it is, it's confusing because it gives two different authors for Psalm 88. But if we take the musical portion, a song, a psalm of the sons of Korah for the choir director according to Mahalath Leonoth, and put that as the end of Psalm 87, then it makes sense, and there's one author of 88, and there's one author of 87. And that's the way we should take it, and we'll talk more about that as we go further through the psalm. But let's note the author of Psalm 87. 
These are the authors of ten different psalms in the Psalter, the sons of Korah. Who in the world are they? Well, you remember Korah from Numbers chapter 16. In Numbers chapter 16, he and several other men had rebelled against Moses and Aaron. And their rebellion led to a time of judgment where God told Moses and Aaron, you separate from those people and their families, you gather them before the nation of Israel, and you watch what I do. And when those men were confronted with their rebellion, the earth opened up and swallowed them and their families. Over 250 people were swallowed up by the earth. And then a plague came after that because of the disobedience of Israel, because they had been infected by the rebellion of Korah and his band. And another 14,700 died in the plague, in addition to the 250 that died being swallowed up by the earth. But 10 chapters later, as Moses is recounting that same event, he says in verse 11, but the sons of Korah did not die. Whoa, wait a minute. Verse 32 of chapter 16 says that all his household was swallowed up with him. Yes, all of his servants, all of his things, his wife, and all of his daughters, but his sons were spared. The only ones spared. Why would they be spared? We're never told. They were the recipients of unmerited, unearned favor, grace. They were given the opportunity to continue to live. Perhaps God saw something in them that was not in their father, that they were not following his rebellion. We have no idea. But it's obvious that they are a remnant of grace. And from that time on, they serve in the tabernacle and the temple as musicians, leading the worship and writing hymns of grace, the grace of God. Ten different psalms in the Psalter, including Psalm 87. So when we think of grace, when we think of the grace of God, unmerited, unearned favor, we've got to think of the sons of Korah. And the sons of Korah, the musicians of God's grace, are the ones who penned Psalm 87. That ought to draw our attention immediately to its content and cause us to understand the message that's coming. Let me read the rest of the psalm. His foundation is in the holy mountain. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the other dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things are spoken of you, O city of God, Selah. Read that as well. That word is unknown as to all of its meaning, but there's one thing everyone agrees to. It means there's some sort of pause that takes place here. Whether that pause is stopping the instruments, the instrumental music from playing, whether it's stopping the vocal singing, whether it's to take a rest there, whether it's for meditation, or whatever it is, it's pause, and it's a pregnant pause. It's a pause that says there's something significant here. It's used to divide psalms into sections or stanzas. It's used to point out key truths. And so this glorious things are spoken of you, O city of God. Pause, meditate on that. Think about it. Verse 4, I shall mention Rahab and Babylon among those who know me. Behold, Philistia and Tyre with Ethiopia. This one was born there. But of Zion, it shall be said, this one and that one were born in her. And the Most High himself will establish her. The Lord will count when he registers the peoples. 
This one was born there, Selah. Think about it. Pause. Meditate. Then those who sing, as well as those who play the flute, shall say, All my springs of joy are in you. A song, a psalm of the sons of Korah, for the choir director according to Mahalat Leonot. That's the psalm. Now, let's divide it into three parts. The first part, verses 1 through 3, Zion's sovereign selection. Zion's sovereign selection. In these three verses, we find out that God has chosen Zion, the city of Jerusalem. It is his choice. It's not because of anything glorious or wonderful. You visit the city of Jerusalem, it sits on a hill, yes. Uh, but it's not, you know, it's not like the Sierra Nevada. It's not like the Rocky Mountains or the Andes or the Himalayas. Uh, in fact, it's kind of lowly. It's kind of dry. And uh, you, you walk around and you say, you know, it's, what's, what's the big deal? And you look at that, but it says the, his foundation is in the holy mountains. Now, it isn't that this ground is holy in and of itself. It's holy because God has chosen it. Like when Moses came to Mount Horeb in the desert, in the wilderness, and he heard the voice of God say, take off your shoes for the ground on which you stand is holy ground. He had seen the burning bush, and he saw the bush was not consumed by the fire, and he thought, what a strange thing. And he approaches, and God reveals himself and talks to him. That ground is holy because God is there. Not because there's anything inherent in the ground. It's the same ground as anywhere else in Israel. It's dry. It's stony. It's got thorns. But that's holy because God is there. He's chosen it for a specific purpose. Jerusalem, Mount Zion, is holy because God has chosen it. It is the place where he's going to send the Messiah. It's the place where the Messiah will die on a cross, a Roman cross, for the sins of the world. And he will rise again from his tomb there, and he will leave the earth from across the valley on the Mount of Olives with the apostles watching him ascend with the angels dressed in white in Acts chapter 1, verse 10. God chose this site. God chose this place to reveal himself and to send the Messiah and to bring salvation. So it's significant. It's important. It's a holy place because of God's selection. The Lord loves the gates of Zion, we're told, more than all the other dwelling places of Jacob. You know, the Ark of the Tabernacle, first when it crossed the Jordan River, stayed at Gilgal for a while. Then it moved on to Shiloh and on to several other locations before finally David brought it up to Jerusalem. Of all those places, which did God love the most? Well, that rabbi, rabbis have an old statement. They say, which of the palaces does a king love most? And the answer always is the one in his home country, in his home region. It's kind of like all those palaces Saddam Hussein had in Iraq. Which one did he prize the highest? The one from his native area, the area where he was born. Was that which he prized the highest and enjoyed the most and made certain the most wealth was poured into it and the most comfort was poured into it? Well, God has established Zion as the place where he's going to reveal himself where he's going to deliver his people Israel, where he's going to send the Messiah, where he's going to bring the message of salvation for all the world, that is the place he loves the most because he chose it because it's the place where the Messiah is going to come, where he's going to die and where he's going to rise from the dead. 
glorious things are spoken of you. That's the old hymn that you often sing. And when it says it, this is in the passive voice because it's understood. It's what we call a divine passive. It's understood that it's God who has spoken those words, not the angels, not man, but God himself. God speaks glorious things, O city of God. And we can see that. Turn to a couple other psalms of Korah, of the sons of Korah. Turn with me to Psalm 46, Psalm 46, and look at verse 4 and following. Psalm 46, starting at verse 4. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling places of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. What's the name of the Messiah? Emmanuel, God with us. God is in the midst of her. She will not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations made an uproar. The kingdoms tottered. He raised his voice. The earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold, Selah. Think about it. You can get that the sons of Korah liked that thought and wanted us to see it. They were superintended by the Holy Spirit to write it just this way, to bring this to our attention. It's the same thing we see in Psalm 87. Look at Psalm 48, two Psalms further along. Psalm 48, and begin at verse 1. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, his holy mountain. Beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. God in her palaces has made himself known as a stronghold. What a glorious God who reveals himself, who desires to protect his people, to be a stronghold, to be one who comes to their defense, to be one who shows himself in all his holiness, the beauties of holiness, to comfort his people, provide for his people, redeem his people, forgive them for their sins, bring them to himself. This is the God of Zion, and this is what makes Zion so precious because that is the place on planet Earth that God chose to accomplish these things. So that, in verses 1 through 3 of Psalm 87, is Zion's sovereign selection. Let's go now to verses five through, 4 through 6. Verses 4 through 6, Zion's selected citizens. Zion's selected citizens, verses 4 through 6. Notice how it starts with, I shall mention. Literally, I shall bring to mind, I shall bring to remembrance. I will cause to be remembered. And who is going to be mentioned or remembered? Rahab. But Rahab here is not the harlot in the city of Jericho that we read about in the book of Joshua. Because this name is in a list of peoples, Babylon, Philistia, Tyre, and Ethiopia. Who is Rahab? Well, Isaiah chapter 30, verse 7 says that Egypt is called by God Rahab. Why? Because Rahab means arrogant and proud, and he will judge the proud. And so in Isaiah chapter 30, verse 7, he says there, I have called Egypt Rahab. So it's Egypt. I shall mention Egypt and Babylon. Wait a minute, aren't those some of the enemies of Israel? And we go on and we have the Philistines. And those entire and Sidon among the Phoenicians. 
and Ethiopia? But notice what he says, among those who know me, among those who know me. That is the phraseology used in the Old Testament to talk about those who are true believers, those who know the Lord God and who worship him and him alone, who have been saved, who have placed their faith in him. And it says here then that there are those among the Egyptians, among the Babylonians, among the Philistines, among the Tyrians, and among the Ethiopians, of, who, of whom it will be said, this one was born there. Where's the there? The there is Zion. Zion. But wait a minute. If they're Egyptian, weren't they born in Egypt? If they're Babylonian, weren't they born in Babylon? If they're Philistines, weren't they born in Philistia? It's like the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8. He came up from Ethiopia because he had been converted from being a Gentile and whatever they worshipped in Ethiopia at the time to being a Jew. So he came up to Jerusalem to observe the Feast of Tabernacles. And while he was there, he purchased a scroll of the book of Isaiah. And as he was returning back home to Ethiopia in the chariot, he was reading the book of Isaiah, came to chapter 53, and was reading about this one who would come and who would be a sacrifice for sins, And Philip suddenly appears, the evangelist whom the Spirit had brought into the wilderness to join himself to the chariot of the Ethiopian eunuch. And Philip says, do you understand what you're reading? (laughs) And he says, how can I except someone tell me about what this means? And so Philip begins to tell him this is fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus is the sacrifice in Isaiah 53. He's the one who's come and paid the penalty for the sins of his people. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. But the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. And at the end of that, the Ethiopian eunuch places his faith in Jesus Christ. And Philip had gone on to talk more about things. He was following the Great Commission, which says, you go into all nations, you evangelize, you preach the gospel, and you... Do what? You baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and you teach them all things that I've commanded you. So Philip was doing that. He didn't stop with the gospel. He went on. And so the Ethiopian eunuch is the one who says, can I be baptized? And Philip's answer is, if you believe, you may, and here's water. So he baptized him right there. And the Ethiopian eunuch went on his way. Philip went back home to Samaria. And the Ethiopian went back to Ethiopia And the rest is history. He was one of the Ethiopians who had been born again. He's one of those that's talked about here. God says there are those in Egypt, there are those in Babylon, there are those among the Philistines, among the Phoenicians, and among the Ethiopians, that it will be said, this one was born there in Zion. Dual citizenship. A citizenship physically in Egypt or Babylon or or Philistia or Ethiopia, but a citizenship spiritually in Zion as a citizen of Zion. What a wonderful picture that is. What a glorious thing to think about. This one was born there. You see, the gospel in the Old Testament is not limited to Israel. That's exactly what Paul said before Agrippa in Acts chapter 26, what Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 1, what Jesus said in Luke chapter 24, what he said again in John chapter 8 and John chapter 10. We go on and on. This is the testimony of Scripture. 
He came to be a savior of the world, not just of the Jews, but of the Gentiles as well. And as we're reading this, it goes on, verse 5, but of Zion it shall be said. Now notice the contrast. Of the Gentile nations, this one was born there. But of Zion it shall be said, this one and that one were born in her. Well, wait a minute. When you use this one and that one, that indicates that these are different people, that there's some that aren't fitting the category. If I say that gentleman and that lady, I'm pointing out two people in the whole congregation, not everyone in the congregation. Remember what Paul wrote in the book of Romans? Not all Israel is Israel. The Israel of God are those who are believing Israelites, not the unbelieving. Not all Israel are Israel. Not all who are born in Zion are born again. Not all who are born in Zion will be citizens of the heavenly kingdom. So here it says this one and that one. And it's interesting because Isaiah uses similar terminology in chapter 44. In chapter 44 of Isaiah, verse 5, he writes this way. This one will say, I am the Lord's. And that one will call on the name of Jacob. And another will write on his hand, belonging to the Lord, and will name Israel's name with honor. What's Isaiah talking about? He's talking about there is a remnant in Israel who are saved. This one and that one. The same as the psalmist. This one and that one were born in her. And the Most High himself will establish her. And it goes on to say the Lord will count when he registers. That word registers can be translated rights. When he records, he writes down the peoples. Where do we read about we read about the Lamb's book of life. That when we come to Christ believing he is the Messiah, that he died for our sins, he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, we are written down for life, for eternal life. Turn with me to Isaiah again. Isaiah chapter 4. And through this you get a picture of why we call the book of Isaiah the gospel of the Old Testament. <laughs> because it has so much in it that is tied to this. Isaiah chapter 4 is a very brief chapter. And as we read it, notice what we have starting at verse 2. Isaiah 4, verse 2. In that day, the branch of the Lord, that is a title of the Messiah. The branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth will be the pride and the adornment of the survivors, the remnant of Israel. It will come about that he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. In other words, set apart to God. Notice the last part of that verse, verse 3. Everyone who is recorded, written down, registered, for life in Jerusalem. What's this talking about? Look at verse 4. When the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and purged the bloodshed of Jerusalem from her midst by the spirit of judgment and by the spirit of burning, then the Lord will create over the whole area of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day, even smoke, and the brightness of a flaming fire by night, just like in the Exodus, the presence of the Son of God. For over all the glory will be a canopy. 
There will be a shelter to give shade from the heat by day and refuge and protection from the storm and the rain. That's the picture that's being talked about. And what is written in the Lamb's Book of Life? This one was born there. And notice the next word in the text, Selah. Think about that. Now, isn't it becoming a little bit more obvious why Jesus said to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, you are the teacher in Israel and you do not understand these things? How can that be? You see, it's so obvious here. You know, this is so obvious that there is a commentary by an unbelieving Jewish commentator who's named Amos Hakam, and Hakam is his pen name. It's the Hebrew word that means wise, Amos the wise. And it has the imprimatur of the chief rabbi of Israel. It's a three-volume commentary on the Psalms. On Psalm 87, he himself writes that this birth cannot refer to the physical birth. It must refer to something spiritual. He's a better teacher in Israel than Nicodemus was because he recognizes that. Now, if an unbelieving Jewish commentator can see that, then we ought to be seeing this and understanding what is being talked about. This is just so wonderful. It's just amazing, is it not? Now, this is not the end of it, though, because turn with me to the epistle to the Galatians, first of all. Keep your finger in Psalm 87. We'll come back and finish the last verse. Galatians, go to chapter 4, chapter 4, take a look at verse 26. Remember, this is written to believers. Verse 26, but the Jerusalem above is free, she is what? Our mother. The ancient Jewish targums of Psalm 87 use that phrase in Psalm 87. Zion is our mother. Paul uses that phrase here to say, Jerusalem above is free, she is our mother. Going right back to what we read back there in Psalm 87. Now turn further over to the epistle to the Hebrews, chapter 12. The epistle to the Hebrews, chapter 12. And in chapter 12, turn to verse 22. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22. Here we have the New Testament capstone of the teaching of Psalm 87. And here we have God's commentary on what we're reading in the Old Testament. What does he say? Hebrews 12, starting at verse 22. But you, whom is he addressing? Believing Hebrews in the city of Jerusalem. But you. He's writing in contrast to the unbelieving Israelites around them that they, as new believers, are tempted to return to. They're tempted to return to the temple and to its services. They're tempted to return. Some of them had been priests in Israel and had come to Christ. And the writer of Hebrews is writing to those Hebrew believers and saying, stand strong, do not change. Uh, You've got to remember that Jesus is our high priest and that Jesus is the fulfillment of these prophecies. He says, but you, as believers, you have come to Mount Zion. Well, they're already there. They live there. He's talking about a spiritual thing. And to the city of the living God. Where do we see that? 
We saw that phraseology in the Psalms of the sons of Korah, the songs of Zion, Psalms 46, Psalm 48, and Psalm uh, 87. To the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled, notice that enrolled, written down, registered in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. Wow. Now, some of you here are actually citizens of the United States. Some of you may be citizens of other nations, or you may be naturalized into a citizenship of the United States. You have a passport, perhaps. You have a birthplace. You have a record. But you know, if you have come to Jesus Christ and you've placed your faith in Him, believing that He died on the cross for your sins, there in Zion, there in Jerusalem, and that He rose again from the dead according to the Scriptures, that He might give us forgiveness of sins and give us life eternal, then you have been registered in the Lamb's Book of Life in this fashion. Your name and right after it, this one was born in Zion. You have dual citizenship. You are a citizen of a nation here on earth, and you are citizens of the new Jerusalem, heaven itself, the new Zion. Dual citizenship, and our citizenship in heaven trumps our citizenship on earth. It's higher. It's more lasting. One day we'll leave this earth and no longer be citizens of any nation on this earth, but if we have come to Christ, we will remain citizens of heaven. We are among Zion's selected citizens. Why? Because we have been born again, just as Jesus said, because we've believed in Jesus Christ. Look at the last verse of Psalm 87. Then those who sing, as well as those who play the flute, shall say, all my springs of joy are in you. Now, you'll see that of joy is in italics. That's added by the translators to try to give the sense of these springs or fountains. They cause rejoicing. And the singing and the playing the flutes, and some translations instead of playing the flutes have dancing there. It's obvious verse 7 is about joy. So verse 7 is Zion's celebrating citizens. Verses 1 to 3, Zion's sovereign selection. Verses 4 to 6, Zion's selected citizens. Verse 7, Zion's celebrating citizens. What do we do when we come to Christ and we've received that gift of amazing forgiveness of our sins and have it stamped in our passport? You are now a citizen of Zion, a citizen of heaven, and that all the sins and judgments written against you are wiped away, are blotted out by the blood of the Lamb of God? We rejoice. It's a time of great joy. It's a time of celebration. The lost has been found. And when the lost sheep was brought in by the shepherd, when he counted and there was none there, the 99 only and one missing, and he went and searched, they celebrated the restoration. When the prodigal son returned home, they had a feast. They celebrated. And the same is true of our salvation. We come to Christ. It's a celebration. It begins in heaven even before it starts on earth. 
but it's a time of joy. You see, this psalm is a psalm of joy. It's celebrating the new birth. It's celebrating the fact that there are those among the nations that God says, they know me, and they're written in the Lamb's Book of Life, recorded for life in heaven. And some even among the nation of Israel, this one and that one, are truly Israel, are truly born again. It's a time of great joy. So all, he is the source of all things. It's so fascinating to me. Read on in John 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7, and Jesus picks up on the same thing, the waters, the water, symbolic of the Holy Spirit, born again by the Spirit and, and uh, born again in such a way that waters, everlasting waters flow, flow from one's belly, flow outward in symbolic of the Holy Spirit, springs of joy the fountain of joy. And that's why then the end of the psalm, the subheading, a song, a psalm of the sons of Korah, reminding us again it's written by those who experience the grace of God as we too have experienced the grace of God, unearned, unmerited favor. And this is for the choir director to use in worship in the temple according to Mahalath Leonoth, which is a name of a song whose tune is being used. Now, Mahalath Leonoth either refers to lamentations concerning sickness, or it has to do with a response with regard to dancing or praise. And so most of the commentators say that this, if it belongs to Psalm 87, it has the idea of Joyce, and Leonoth is not ever used really of a lamentation anywhere else in the Old Testament. So it has to be praise, and so it's joyful praise. A song that is a joyful song of joyful praise is the way that this psalm is to be sung. Is it no wonder? It's the message of the Messiah. It's the message of John chapter 3. It's that message that Jesus goes on to summarize by saying that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. What a wonderful psalm, a psalm of the new birth. Nicodemus, why were you blinded? Paul tells us later on in 1 Corinthians, he says that there, or 2 Corinthians chapter 3, says there's a veil upon their eyes and upon their hearts lest they believe. His eyes were veiled. Why were they veiled? So that Jesus would make the declaration all the more emphatically. And it, it seems to me that as you come later in the book, it appears that Nicodemus has finally come to Jesus by faith. And I believe he probably did come to him by faith. But he had to hear the gospel message directly from the lips of his Messiah. We have it here. It's a wonderful message. There's a unity between the old and the new here. And there's that unity is in the message of Jesus Christ. As we talked about in the Adult Bible Fellowship this morning, it's a story with two beginnings, but it's only one message, one story. Jesus saves. If you're here this morning, you have not come to Jesus Christ. Cast yourself upon him. Trusted him for your salvation. Realize that he is the one who came, who died on the cross for your sins, rose again from the dead that you might have life, everlasting life, and forgiveness of sins. Our invitation to you today is that you would accept him, that you would believe this for yourself, 
And before you leave here today, if you would just seek out someone here in this congregation to talk with you more about it, perhaps to pray with you, that you might understand this message more clearly. We cannot save you. We're not saved by men. In Psalm 49, the psalmist says there, and it's the sons of Korah again, amazingly, says that no man can redeem himself and no man can redeem his brother or sister or child or wife or husband or mother or father. The ransom is given by God and God alone. He's the only one who can deliver. He's the one who redeems. So the invitation we give is really that which God gives, and you must trust in God to do that work in your heart to make you over anew, to give you that new birth, a new citizenship in heaven.